Good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Knox, and it's my pleasure to add a word of welcome to what Sam already said this morning. We're glad you're here with us today, and we do hope that you will join us for lunch after the service. Let's pray. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and all of our hearts be pleasing to you. Holy Spirit, would you come today and speak your encouragement into our lives? Would you show us what you want us to see today? Would you reveal your son Jesus to us most of all? We ask in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So we are a church that is following Jesus, loving the city, and serving the world. That's the third time you've heard that this morning, and you're going to hear it more in the coming weeks. Normally, you'll hear that in every service we have at Knox. It's the vision of Knox Church for how God is calling us into life together in Christ. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to be exploring that vision statement in particular depth, pausing with each phrase within it. Last Sunday, we wrapped up our summer series in the Psalms by considering the words of God in Psalm 19, God's speech. And we saw that God speaks to us through the natural world around us, and he speaks to us through scripture, scripture that points us to the living word, who is Jesus. And in response, we listen. We don't only listen, but we start. The life of faith in God begins with listening. We pay attention to God's word. We do that in community. And we listen too for how the Holy Spirit is guiding us to live out God's truth, to obey it. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? It's hard to argue with that part of a mission statement if you're a Christian church. It seems perhaps obvious. Well, that verb, to follow, appeared once in the passage we just heard read. It showed up in verse 31 where Mary's friends follow her out of the house. So she leaves the house and they literally walk out after her. And when the 12 disciples follow Jesus, they're our first model for what this looks like. That's exactly what they did. Jesus led them from place to place and they followed him. But we don't follow Jesus like that today. We don't walk around the countryside with him. To follow someone also means to find value in what they say, to incorporate it into our own views, even to believe it. That's more how we follow people these days, whether it's someone you admire, someone you follow on social media, or someone you're following as a religious leader. And you can follow Jesus that way. But it's not enough. It's not what God calls us to. I want to define Jesus, following Jesus as listening to his words, believing them, and living them out. But we'll see that it goes even deeper than that. Following Jesus amounts to a total transformation in our lives. In John 11, we find words and actions of Jesus that encompass the whole of Christian faith and that show us what it really means to follow him. 
In this passage, Jesus does three things. First of all, he gives us hope. Secondly, he shares in our sorrow. And third, he bursts out in anger. All of this leads to new life and restoration. That's where we end up. So when Jesus arrives in Bethany, he encounters Mary and Martha, the two sisters of Lazarus. First, Martha goes out to him, and then Mary does. But it's funny. Strange. Even though both sisters say exactly the same thing to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, he responds differently to each one of them. He is their friend. It's apparent that he has listened to them in the past, and he knows what they need. They need to hear different things. We need to hear all of this. And so first, to Mary, he offers hope. She takes him to task right away for his absence. If you read from the beginning of this chapter, you'll see that Jesus heard that Lazarus was very sick, and he stayed. Deliberately, he stayed away. And so perhaps it's understandable that Martha is upset with him. She says to Jesus, if you had been here when Lazarus was still alive and sick, if only you'd arrived before his death, then my brother would still be alive. She's frustrated, maybe even angry. Jesus tells her, simply, your brother will rise again. And I think she takes his reply as one of those routine comments people make when they're trying to comfort you. Something that's predictable, trite even. Most Jews of that day, you see, believed in the resurrection of the dead in the last days when the Messiah would come. They believed that all Jews would be raised from the dead. And so Martha here seems to have assumed that Jesus was pointing out to her the correct way of thinking about her brother's death. But I think in the brevity of her reply, all she says is, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And also in her matter-of-fact tone, at least that's what I hear, we see that this knowledge is empty for her. It's not a comfort for her. She might as well have said, I know, I know, I know he will rise in the last day. Okay, sure. But where were you? Jesus goes on next to respond to her in a way that defies all expectations. He says something that would have been astonishing to those gathered there and astonishing to all those who heard about it by word of mouth. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And as he does that, he's offering himself as the source of hope and the promise of new life, not just for Martha, not just for Mary, but for everyone. Now this, if you know the Gospel of John, you may be aware that this is one of the I am sayings in John's account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. If you go back to Exodus 3 in the Old Testament, when Moses encountered God at the burning bush, God identified himself as I am. That's Yahweh, that's God's personal name. We saw it last week in Psalm 19. John tells us that Jesus took on himself the personal name for God when he made a series of claims such as, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd, among others. 
And that claim would have amazed, perhaps offended, certainly gotten the attention of the Jewish people. So when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he isn't merely correcting Martha's theology. He isn't saying he can help her to get at the right view of resurrection. Rather, he's saying that he is the resurrection and the life. He is the victory and power over death. That he will be with us always to the grave and beyond. To follow Jesus is not to know about God. It's to know God yourself. It's to receive his hope. It's personal knowledge. It's faith that Christ is with you. That he will not leave you even during the darkest times in your life. Even as you face death, death itself that he will see you through. But if Jesus is the resurrection, if he offers hope like that, like no one else can, why does he weep? That's the next thing that happens here. Mary comes to Jesus and asks him the same question as her sister had. And he says nothing at all to comfort her. He seems to offer her no hope. Instead, we read that Jesus was deeply moved and that he wept. Why would he cry? After all, he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew that he was about to astonish them in the best way possible. But first, he chooses to share in their sorrow. And so we're reminded that Jesus entered our world that he really felt what we feel. He wasn't just passing through. They called him a teacher, but he was the kind of teacher that feels what you feel, that listens like you can't imagine. He loved and he suffered. He lived a life like ours so that he could say, I am the resurrection and the life, not only as truth, but from within his own experience of suffering, not from a distance, but as one who has come close and offers to come close again and again. One commentator has said that Jesus offers Martha truth and Mary tears. We need both. We need God's truth in Jesus Christ and we need the tears of Jesus. And so when Jesus says, I am the resurrection, he's telling them that he's truly God. He's telling them he is the one they've been waiting for, the one who can save us from our sins and rescue us from death and renew us forever. He is God Almighty, creator of the universe, and he holds everything together. With his tears, Jesus shows us that he has come, that he left his throne, he came among us into the dark valleys of our lives so he could meet us there as the good shepherd who says, I am with you. He shows us that he feels pain too, that he is a man of sorrows, that he has blown apart every religious assumption that God was only transcendent, had to be distant, could not suffer. He pursued us. And so he's not calling us to his high place. He's not demanding that we live up to his standard, that we work even harder to be good. No. Again, he has come close to us, and he weeps with us. 
So many of us are dealing with darkness in our lives right now. I hope you have the comfort of Jesus weeping with you, of knowing that. That you can take your trouble to the Lord in prayer. But if that's not the case, if you only hear the silence of God, if you have maybe never prayed, or if your prayers have stopped, know that Jesus, from that place of weeping, is praying for you too. Louis Burkhoff puts it like this in his Systematic Theology. It's a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we're not praying. He presents to the Father those spiritual needs we may not even be aware of. He prays for our protection against dangers of which we are not even conscious, and against the enemies which threaten us, though we do not notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease, and that we may come out victorious in the end. And so by his truth, Jesus reigns in victory. By his tears, he knows us like no one else. He always wants the best for us, interceding, asking God the Father for that. We will find healing in the truth and tears of Jesus. We need them both. And so starting next week, as we move on further in Knox's vision statement, as we explore it in scripture, we'll talk more about how to follow Jesus into our everyday lives as we love the city and serve the world. But in this passage, there's a practical question that arises, for me anyway. How do you respond to grief? I think this passage is the most powerful encouragement for us as the church to come alongside people who are mourning, people in grief that that is a calling we have as Christians, that you have individually. And so some words of advice around that. The first thing is don't try to fix someone's grief. If you're the kind of person who likes to fix things, who can't leave things loose, untied, you cannot fix anyone's grief. Sometimes we say to people who are grieving, I know how you feel, or you'll get over it, or your mom or your dad lived a long life, it was time. Or for a sudden death, we might try to comfort someone by saying, it's good she didn't suffer. Except for the person grieving, there's nothing good about it. These are not things we should be saying. Other times, people suggest, just even in subtle ways, that you should get over your grief or that you will eventually. In all of this, follow the example of Jesus with Mary. Come alongside the person in your life as much as possible and say nothing or say little. Simply be with them. People grieve in different ways and at different rates. It's a journey that's unique to each person. We are a people of the cross. Easter morning does not change that. We are a people acquainted with sorrow. We take our cue from Jesus himself in that regard. And God calls us as his church to walk with people in their grief, to listen, to learn, to weep with them. And one of the best things you can do if you have someone like that in your life right now or when you do is just to ask them to tell you stories about their loved one. Take the time to be with them. 
Don't be too worried about saying the wrong thing. And definitely do not avoid people who are grieving. Get involved. Show up at the funeral. Send a message. Write a card. Make a meal. Pray. And this isn't only about people who are grieving after someone has died. We, as God's people, come alongside those who are preparing for death. That also is our unique calling. Right now in our family, my brother-in-law, Philip, is dying. Judith's older sister's husband, and uh, he has ALS. And it's just terrible watching him waste away. There was a poignant moment recently where uh, the coordinator of his care, who coordinates PSWs and and medical care of various kinds, um, said to Philip and uh, Judith's sister, Robin, uh, they said, you know, it's, it's funny, we don't see people at this stage of ALS very often. And, and, uh, and so Robin asked on Philip's behalf, because he speaks through a computer, um, why is that? Well, it's because most people um, have chosen to not live any longer at that stage of ALS. But I have never seen or heard a better witness to the hope of Jesus Christ than in my brother-in-law. The joy that he has spoken of in churches and to anyone who will listen. The joy he has in Christ his hope beyond the grave, his confidence that God will not abandon him is a thing of incredible beauty. But Jesus does more than weep here. He gets angry also. From the hope he gives to Martha through the sorrow he shares with Mary, we come into the rage of Jesus. In verse 33, it says that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. In verse 38, again, we read that he was deeply moved. The New Living Translation is better, I think. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. And so we see that God hates suffering and death. God hates sin, which is the source of death. And the Greek word used there for anger is very strong. It refers to the snorting of an angry horse about to enter a battle or the bellowing of an enraged bull before he charges. It makes me think of some lines by the Welsh poet Dylan Thomas. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And in 
writing those lines, Dylan Thomas is partly right. At least he doesn't deny death like most of our culture. We're afraid of death, we pretend it's not there, or we try to convince ourselves that death is a natural and beautiful thing, that it's just the final stage of life. But deep down, we know that death is not our friend. The Bible says that first of all, death is our enemy. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls it the last enemy. And so the rage, the anger of Jesus is directed at death itself. And behind it, at the one who has the power of death. The one who has come into the world to lie and destroy. John Calvin says that burning with rage, Jesus advances to the tomb as a champion who prepares for conflict. That's in his commentary on this passage in John. And I love that. Can I get an amen? Oh. Thank you. And so Jesus defeats death. He calls Lazarus by name, and his friend comes walking out of that tomb, alive. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Christianity, alone among all worldviews and religions, sees death as a defeated enemy. Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 15, where, O death, is your sting? Where, O grave, is your victory? He's actually mocking death as he writes that. And then he erupts in thank God who gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 25 again where Jesus says, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. If you struggle with that, if you struggle to believe that, if you find yourself anxious and worried about many things right now, you have good company here. We are on that journey together as a church. When we sang earlier that Jesus has resurrected me, we can only sing that in anticipation of the future. In this world, we have trouble, not least the doubts and confusion that beset us. And so we come back to God's word. You borrow hope from those who sit around you in this room today as you enter into relationship with them. And you grow in hope and receive God's truth as you hear Jesus saying these words again, I am the resurrection and the life. To follow Jesus means to cross over from death to eternal life. Not through living a good life and trying really hard. Following Jesus isn't about being busy running his errands. No, it's a complete transformation. Paul puts it best again. He writes in 2 Corinthians 5, at one time we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. Jesus Christ, risen and alive forevermore, is on the move. So let us, as those who follow him, speak hope and truth to those who need it. Let us come alongside those who suffer and weep with them. And let us choose life always. Let us grow in holy anger at the sin in our own hearts and also have that same anger at the sin and evil in the world. As we seek reconciliation and restoration, 
wherever God has put you. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Follow him, run to him, trust in him, and receive his everlasting love. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's take a moment now to reflect on what we've heard this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus, the first reflection question is, do you see yourself first as needing to do things for him? Is that for you what it means to follow Jesus? Or do you see yourself as someone who has received the gift of life, as a new creation, who has crossed over from death into life? How are you joining Jesus right now, in the days ahead, in the months ahead, in sharing his truth, his tears, and his holy anger at sin and injustice?